2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network, and environmental studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Aspen Brown, the host of the channel, and I am currently an MA candidate at the University of Wyoming studying cultural history, focusing on environment, science, and knowledge. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Lindsay Starkey about her new book, Encountering Water in Early Modern Europe and Beyond, published by Amsterdam University Press in 2020. Dr. Lindsay Starkey, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you very much for having me.
2: Thank you for, for coming on. And um, on that note, as a, as a way to start off our interviews, we always just like to, uh, to have our guests say a little bit about themselves. So um, would you like to give a little bit of a, a background about yourself?
1: Sure. Um, I am currently an associate professor of history at Kent State University and, as the title of the book suggests, I am an early modern Europeanist who focuses most on the 16th century. Uh, My work is typically focused around the intersection of the history of religion, um, specifically Christianity and Judaism and the history of science. And in terms of teaching, I will actually start my 11th year at Kent uh, this upcoming fall. I teach uh, world history, upper division courses. I tease uh, basically from the medieval warm period till Napoleon loses the battle of Waterloo. It's kind of my upper division courses and then uh, some methods classes and a uh, graduate course on the, uh, the Reformation.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that, that wonderful introduction. And, and you're obviously very knowledgeable in, in those areas from, uh, from, from the content in your book. And would you like to, would you like to just introduce um, uh, Encountering Water in, in Early Modern Europe and Beyond?
1: Um, sure, I'd I'd love to. Um, I'll go ahead and talk a little bit about how I came to write it, and then provide a little bit of an overview of the uh, the book's argument and uh, the contribution that I was was uh, wanting to make with the study. Um, I came to this topic from really two different inspirations. Uh, the first was my dissertation, which was about John Calvin and the way in which he incorporated uh, some natural philosophical ideas into uh, specifically his biblical exegesis but some of his other uh, other works as well Um, for those who are not familiar john calvin was one of the uh, the protestant reformers who's associated with geneva switzerland and in my dissertation i had a chapter on water in calvin's works and he wrote a lot about how the only reason water does not flood the earth is because god keeps it back and allows for a safe space for people to live and this was a very odd claim for uh, the natural philosophical works that i was looking at which suggest you know there shouldn't really be any uh, pr- kind of problems figuring out why water doesn't uh, you know flood the earth and as i looked into some of the other 16th century authors to uh, to contextualize calvin's works i found that they were really interested in this question of how do we end up with dry land whereas earlier authors so predating the 16th century they're not as concerned about it and so I kind of made a note as I was finishing up my dissertation about wanting to uh, to explore this question further. Um, the other kind of inspiration for this book actually comes from my personal history and my general interest in water. Um, I am from northeastern Ohio, and I grew up about three miles from Lake Erie, so one of the Great Lakes. And... Actually, as a kid, I didn't realize that not everyone lived within about 10 minutes of a beach. That was that was a learning curve for me. And as I was away in graduate school, Lake Erie was experiencing some of the largest fluctuations in its water level, in its recorded history. Um, I believe it went from some of the lowest recorded levels to highest recorded levels in a 10 year period. And where I'm from, uh, Geneva, Ohio, one of the parks there in the winter of uh, 2019, 2020, actually lost over a hundred feet of land because of this like very uh, drastic fluctuation in their water levels. And so, you know, I was kind of interested in that personally, but I didn't really know uh, what to do with that academically. Uh, but thankfully, I have a colleague at Kent whose name is Anne Martinez, who introduced me to the environmental humanities and uh, the association for the study of literature and the environment. And it got me really interested in reading about uh, the kind of the blue humanities and the ways in which uh, kind of cultural understandings of you know, bodies of water, in my case, how those shape the way that people uh, behave towards water. And so I was hoping with my book to uh, both to pick up on the interest I developed in this question during my dissertation about why is it only in the 16th century that Europeans get so interested in water's relationship to the earth? and then uh, trying to help as best I can as a historian with uh, some of the water crises that we're experiencing uh, today in the 21st century.
2: I really appreciate that mindfulness towards, towards trying to navigate both the present and the past in in such a graceful way. And, and that, that certainly comes through in the book. Um, I mean, do you want to just move on from there and, and, get into what you're arguing and and why, um, why it's important?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, in terms of, I've already mentioned this, but just as a reminder, the two major questions that I wanted to address with my book were the first, why is it in the 16th century that Europeans are especially interested in the relationship between water and earth? And then the second one was, you know how is what these authors wrote and what they did. How might that help us, right, in our current situation, deal with the climate change and, t- honestly, to try to get us to do something about it? And the argument that I made in terms of the first question, so about the uh, the 16th century, is that what really pushed these authors to be so concerned about water's relationship to the earth are the sea voyages that Europeans started to make in the 15th century to sub-Saharan Africa and Asia in particular, but then also the Americas, um, specifically South America, because as all these reports of these new lands and people are coming in, Uh, other Europeans, the Europeans I studied in my book, they are thinking, hey, wait a minute, how is their land located in this area? We always thought these were supposed to be places covered by water. And so these voyages, I argue, are what sort of raised the question about the relationship between water and earth. Um, However, Europeans then turned, uh, the people I study are intellectuals, meaning people who have uh, university educations primarily, they turn to the methods that they were trained with, um, specifically the methods of reading books from respected authorities to answer the questions of where did all this water go or what is the relationship between water and earth. And so... What I discovered in my research was that in the 16th century, Europeans are reading different ancient authorities in particular, uh, such as Ptolemy's geography, which has a different take on the relationship between water and earth than many ancient authorities. Uh, Many of the scholars I studied also became especially interested in Jewish exegesis in the 16th century. And you find there a, a different take on God's relationship to the uh, the earth. And so you find kind of these questions coming up, getting addressed through scholarship. And um, the final kind of piece to this, this argument of mine is that this is also a period of religious reformation And there's a lot of discussion in Europe about God's connection to the universe. And so where sea voyages raise the specific question of the relationship between water and earth, the interest in reading the Bible and discovering kind of God's uh, relationship to human beings as they perceive it in some of the natural phenomena that they uh, interact with in the world. Uh, this really leads them to look at their traditional scholarship and some new texts to try to answer the uh, what happened to all the water and why doesn't it flood the earth? Um, in terms of the the argument for our more modern period, uh, what I what I ultimately kind of came to boiled down to the fact that, you know, facts themselves, or what we might want to call facts, these don't convince people of anything. We have to keep in mind uh, the cultures in which people were born, and the ways in which they actually learn about water in order to to kind of understand and to impress upon people or help impress upon people how serious the modern water crisis really is. And in the book, I kind of boil it down to uh, sort of methodology, ideology, and experience, right? So methodology for 16th century Europeans reading books, right, the ideology, so uh, the predominantly kind of Christian and ancient background, and then reading about experiences of these voyages, they all come together to change the way 16th century Europeans thought about water. And I think if, in the 21st century, if we expect people to care and to do something, we also need to keep in mind how people learn about water, what assumptions they bring about, uh, about it to the table and their experiences with it uh, so that we can have more fruitful dialogues. Um, In terms of the the contribution, there is a debate in my field in particular about the impact of overseas voyages on European thought. Uh, The more uh, traditional view was that it changed everything, right? So everything changed in October of 1492. Uh, There was a more revisionist view of it not being all that important that European scholarship continues through long-standing methods, and that Europeans understand uh, the encounters that they're having with new peoples and new places through traditional uh, European categories. And in my book, I'm hoping to take a middle approach, you know, talking about how, well, the voyages very much helped focus Europeans' attention on particular topics, to which they then Applied their traditional methods and their traditional assumptions or ideologies. Um, there's also, in terms of the environmental humanities, there's a growing research area on how the humanities shape our interactions with the environment and what the study of the humanities can do for the environment. And so in uh, my afterward in particular, where I talk about our, our modern water crisis, I was hoping to make some suggestions uh, for that area as well.
2: Yeah, and if we have time at the end, I would I would love to hear you go into those as well. But, but before we do that, um, thank you for for just a wonderful explanation there and and what insightful information about um the historiographical debate that's going on about how impactful these sea voyages are because i i've actually delved a little bit into for my own research and, and looking at scientific methods and, and knowledge i've i've looked at at the end of the 16th century and mm-hmm. um and the seven into the 17th century so it's really really cool to see this the other side of it and, and really see how assumptions were, were questioned and the world changed, but didn't change. And it's, it's all, it's all kind of a, it's all kind of a muddle, but, um, and and one thing I found really interesting too, in, in chapter one, Athens and Jerusalem on water, you, you start in antiquity. Um, Would you like to talk a little bit about Your your perspective on um, what they were thinking about water in in antiquity, and then also why you decided to use um, antiquity as kind of this a a launching point for your for your book.
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, To start with your second question first, I decided to look at uh, antiquity because it is a crucial part of sixteenth century. Scholars, um, just their intellectual world, as well as the way in which they approach the world. Uh, they would read specifically ancient authorities in order to uh, to kind of see what they had to say about a wide variety of of topics, and while never bound to what these ancient authorities said. Right? They could always raise questions, of course, or disagree. The starting place for scholarship in the in the 16th century were these ancient works, these authoritative works. And so, in this particular chapter, um, the the title actually comes from an early, uh, excuse me, an early Christian uh, named Tertullian, who rhetorically asks, "What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem?" Right. So, why are Christians for him, Jerusalem, why are they studying, like, ancient Greeks and Romans, Athens, and, um, you know, in even asking that question, Tertullian was using a rhetorical device, which comes from ancient Greece and Rome, which is kind of funny, but um, the two go very closely together, so the, it's for scholars in the 16th century, and so I started out then with the um, ancient sources. And what I found is that even prior to the development of Christianity, there were a lot of discussions in a variety of different texts about the relationship between water and earth. Uh, But there's general agreement in the ancient period that I found broke down in the 16th century. And in these ancient works, they argue, you know, first of all, that the universe is rational and it's orderly, right? So water and earth are parts of the universe and they have a rational, relatively stable relationship. Um, There's a lot of speculation in these ancient works about the actual layout of water and the land masses in the earth. There is a general agreement that there's a lot more water in the world than there is earth. Uh, They talk about the known world, which for them was uh, what we call today, Asia, Europe, and Africa, that this area is entirely surrounded by water, right, kind of almost like a large island. And for those ancient scholars who say, well, there maybe are other land masses They explained, but even if there are other landmasses in other parts of the globe, the uh, water makes it impossible for us to to travel there, right? There's so much water. Uh, It's also, they thought, really, really hot that if you tried to get to these landmasses that we don't know about, you'll burn up in the heat. Um, the final thing in these ancient works that I noticed is this uh, this kind of tendency, especially in uh, Stoic and Epicurean works, to view water as a really destructive force, like water, uh, also along with fire, as a really destructive force, and. In the latter half of this chapter, what I found really fascinating as I started to look into uh, some early Christian works is that they take this tradition, which comes out of Greek, pr- primarily Greek, but some Roman scholarship, and they don't really change it very much. They, they appropriate it and adapt it into a, a Christian framework. And so they say, okay, there is a rational, stable relationship between water and earth And Christians will add, and the reason there is one is because God, on the third day of creation, commanded the dry land to appear in order to give people a dry and then eventually fertile place to live. And so they Christianize that tradition. And that is very much what uh, the 16th century authors I study that they inherit and that they are uh, in dialogue with as they're working on their own work.
2: And that's a perfect segue to chapter two, where you analyze a whopping thirty-eight different commentaries from both Christian and and medieval Christian and and Jewish um, um, contemporaries in the sixteenth century. And I like that's so interesting that they're ordering the world in this specific way using um, using religion and using God as as this this justification for. For the balances of of the world, um, so I, I was just I was just wondering if you wanted to to talk more on what they argued specifically, or if you had one or two like really favorite um, commentators that that just always stuck out out to you, even though you used this this wide array.
1: Oh yeah, sure. So um, just a little bit on the argument that I was was making here. So I have argued it. And as I kind of mentioned before in the first chapter, what develops out of a lot of these early Christian, as well as the ancient authors is the idea that water and earth have a natural relationship to one another. Like it's, it's part of nature. It's what happens all the time. You don't really need to worry about it too much because it's going, you know, it's, that's the way it is today. That's the way it will be tomorrow. And what I found in the uh, the commentaries that you just referenced Aspen, is that this idea of a stable relationship continues um, into the medieval period until you get to the 16th century. And um, you asked me about some examples. So the person I found who is most influential, even into the 16th century, is a latin theologian who um, is very influential on a variety of different topics but a man named augustine of hippo who uh, does appear in the first chapter of my book but he's kind of a constant theme uh, throughout and what he speculates in his text uh, again to show the natural relationship between water and earth is that okay prior to the third day of creation when god gathered the water together sure water covered the earth but it covered it like clouds cover you know land masses mountains things like that and so he says when god says okay water you know gather together the clouds became more dense and they started to condense and turn into the water that we experience today and that exposes some of the regions of the dry land um, he also argues additionally, so not only did we have this cloud thing going on, but there were uh, holes, right? Though The earth was porous, and it poured into the water, or mixed, excuse me, water poured into the land, and then that allowed the dry land, at least some of it, to stick out above the water. And so these solutions are fascinating, and they're also a good example of a natural discussion because everything right, is totally changed after the third day. The water-earth relationship is stable. Um, and then you get to the 16th century and you encounter someone like Martin Luther, right, so a, uh, a theologian and um, someone, of course, closely associated with the development of Protestantism. And he argues in his lectures on Genesis in the 1530s that, um, just to give you a quote, he says, quote, it is by divine power that the waters do not press in on us. He says, God, therefore, performs for us to this day and until the end of the world, that same miracle which he performed for the people of Israel with the Red Sea. Right? So God, in other words, is like actively keeping the water from flooding the earth on a daily basis, and it's it's quite different than Augustine's. Hey, it was like clouds, and then it just condensed.
2: It's so fascinating to see these differences in in narrative, but they're not they're they're well thought out, right? And it's it's really interesting to to consider that it was just people trying to trying to orient themselves in the world and understand their place in the world, and it's just. A way different worldview than than we have today and and it's just it, it this this book was really foundational in in making me kind of see the other side a little bit better um which i really really appreciate and and one thing i was thinking of while you were talking and also while, while reading this chapter is well uh, at this around the 16th century and, and obviously a, a few centuries before there's we have the little ice age and we have have some climate change um are are some of the do do you do you do you think or know or speculate if some of these changes on the the understanding or narratives behind water are they changing because the climate is changing and and the the balances that they're seeing that were so um so powerful in the in antiquity and and leading up to the 16th century kind of undercut or undermined because of, of different climate um, changes?
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I, I think the first question, which I'm not sure of the, the response to or the answer to, is how aware the historical actors were at the time that this climate change was going on. Uh, there has been a lot of scholarship to show, especially in the, the 14th century, the 1300s, where there was quite a drastic, drastic shift from that medieval uh, worm period that I mentioned before. Contemporaries were aware because you had bodies of water that were freezing and that had never frozen before in anybody's lifetime. Um, by the time you get to the 16th century, I have found less of that what they are seem to be more aware of is less like climate change and they are more aware of like severe individual events. Uh, So, for example, I believe it's in the 1520s or in the 1530s that there's a huge flood of a river um, in I believe it's what is today Germany. And that generates quite a lot of pamphlets. So there's a lot of discussions about it. Uh, but what I found fascinating is that kind of discussion did not end up in the exegetical texts that I write about in uh, the second chapter of my book.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Um, why do you think that is? Do, do you do have any have any thoughts?
1: I do. I have a, I have a couple theories, and they're they're connected. I think the first reason that it's not in the commentaries that I looked at is because of the ways in which the uh, Christians in particular read the rest of the book of Genesis. So if you think about the story of Noah and the flood, at the end of that story, God promises that he will never flood the entire earth again. And so I don't think, since it was a more of a localized flood, I don't think it resonates or it doesn't register as something that could destabilize their entire conception of water. The other thing I think that's going on here, a lot of the pamphlets that I mentioned are coming from uh, people who are uh, what we would call today Protestant, right? so evangelical in the period, Protestant and they are, are very interested in uh, signs from God, providence, and the idea that there is a localized flood, not the big one, because God promised that's not happening again, but the localized flood uh, was um, by, read by many people as a sign. So it's, it's not necessarily a natural event. It's a, a, a miracle, right? God is intervening to punish them for their sins.
0: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. That's oh man,
2: that's so cool. And and I think you you really point out something important too to that I'm talking about climate, applying it to to people in the past, it's obvious, you know, they they they, they didn't have that that kind of language and stuff. So so I apologize if I if I made a little anachronistic faux pas there. Um but, but thank you for your answer it was that that so it, it, this is just such a interesting way of, of approaching um, of approaching the early modern period and and kind of going into to the third chapter um, you get into you get into text and, and one term that you use and it's, I think it kind of appears throughout the, the book but it's um, it it's bookish, bookish methods and it's it's getting into the idea of how these how these knowledge really, transmit and are shared between these texts and i just wanted to to ask you a little bit about how those networks were formed and how how why people grant why why people in like the 16th century granted authority to people in the past with such with such kind of um with with not a lot of doubt i guess or that's kind of how it seems to my end and that could be wrong as well
1: yeah no this is a great question i think I think, well, there's, the, people have written, you could spend your whole career on this topic, right? So I'll try to, yeah, try to yeah. <laughs> summarize my thoughts. But I, I think part of it, well, a lot of it has to do with, in the 16th century in particular, there is an interest in recovering ancient works because they are seen as more authentic, as more, or authentic's not the right word, they are uh, more likely to contain truth than works that were written in uh, more immediately uh, you know, contiguous centuries. So we often talk about this, the word, uh, they don't use this in the 16th century, actually, but we call it humanism. Right? So when we teach, you talk about humanism in this idea of going to the sources, right? so going back to the ancient sources and reading them directly for their, yourself. Um, Because kind of building on on your uh, question, Aspen, and the use of the term bookish methods, bookish methods had been the way that European universities functioned, right? In order to get a degree, you would hear lectures on what were considered authoritative texts. And you would, uh, you know learn them, kind of learn some of the debates surrounding them. And by the time you get to kind of the 15th century, there's a lot of people who have written commentaries on these ancient texts. So what you're hearing in your lecture hall might be that commentary instead of the ancient text itself. And you know, beginning uh, especially in, in the Italian peninsula, in you know, what we call the Renaissance and then spreading out from there, we start to see this interest in, well, I don't wanna read the commentary from the 14th century guy. I wanna read Aristotle directly and see what he has to say. And so they give uh, Aristotle a lot of authority. Um, I like to tease my students. I think we still in universities, at least in history, we still have bookish methods uh, my question to them is, how do you know that the Earth is round? And I've had some students who've actually done some of the experiments and, and have actually seen it themselves, but I will speak personally, as someone with training in history, I know because I've read about it in books, and these books, of course, are written by people who have science scientific expertise, who have done the experiments, right? and I certainly acknowledge that, but... I know that information because I've personally know it because I've read it in books. And I think we see something kind of similar in the 16th century, too.
2: Yeah, I love that. Hayden White would be mad back then, too, about people not going back to the sources. That's amazing. They had their own little postmodern turn that wasn't in the modern period. Um, But that's amazing. Thank you so much for that answer, because it's so it's so fascinating to, to learn about these, these ideas and how, how knowledge really does go is this generational um, uh, sealer that, that gets translated from generation to generation, but then it's also like one big game of telephone too. Right. So did you run into any, any problems with like, or any issues with like missing texts where they might, Refer- somebody might reference a text that you can't find or don't know anything about.
1: Yes, that was le- that was the hardest research challenge for this particular work. Was deciding which texts to include and which to exclude, because as you're suggesting, theoretically, the number of texts to to include could be basically infinite. Right, there's lots of things that I could have included, and so. Uh, the way I built uh, the the kind of, as I call it, the the research bibliography. So what primary sources I was going to read and analyze for the book was I started in with the sixteenth century texts, and I looked at who sixteenth century Europeans cited. So who did they cite? and then i trace the references back from there so okay they're citing i know for example like thomas aquinas right? so they they cite thomas aquinas then I find Thomas Aquinas and find who Aquinas cites, and then kind of going from there. Uh, I also, of course, relied on other uh, modern scholars and the works that they've done on these texts, uh, and where they've pointed out that these works were particularly influential. And so then I I also went and and added them to the research bibliography as well.
2: Oh my gosh, that's so much work, but it's so it's 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 an oppressive amount of work. Um, how many, can I ask how many languages do you, do you speak and, and how many languages you grappled with throughout this project?
1: Uh, sure. So I, the only language I speak fluently is English. I have a conversational and a reading knowledge of German. I can read French and Latin. And then I, I like to tease. I know just enough Dutch and du- just enough Greek to be dangerous, right? To convince <laughs> myself that I, I can, I can pick through this.
2: Sure, sure. That's awesome, though. That's because it it allows you to, I'm sure, do more more work. At least to be, to be, or it's more freeing to to be knowledgeable in those that, that vast array of, of of language as well. Well thank you so much for, for that that answer because that's that's really interesting and, and it must have been what well, did it take a long time to develop this this methodology where where you you were building on on this this genealogy that you could track?
1: Um, it's something that previous scholars have done before, especially yeah. when it comes to the history of exegesis, which is, as I mentioned, um, I was trained initially in, uh, Reformation, uh, studies. So the Reformation was my, uh, kind of major focus as a graduate student. And you find it in a lot of scholarship there, especially for, uh, those who do intellectual history like I do. And so... I, I you know, picked up the method as part of my training and then decided that it was the way to go for this particular book.
2: Okay. Very cool. Sorry. I, I, am I usually, I work in the modern era and like American studies. So it's like, it's a much different landscape. So it's cool that, that you have these different levels of training and these different approaches. And, and I think it's helpful for historians to branch out into these different, into these different periods just to, uh, to be able to understand each other and stuff. Um, so, so thank you for, for that insight. Um, uh, let's, let's move to chapter four now and, and kind of move from books to maps and and um, understanding both the cosmos and, and geography. Um, do you wanna talk about about this, this chapter and, and how medieval authors claim that there were more water on earth and that this water located was located in the, the Southern hemisphere?
1: Sure. Uh, so this this particular chapter uh, that Aspen has asked about is focused specifically on cosmographical and geographical texts. So texts that talk about the layout of, you know, what we would call the globe. So the re- the relationship basically between water and land masses, and the connection between uh, the, the globe, the Earth, and uh, how it relates to other planets in the cosmos. And so these texts, there's a lot of discussion, right? so they talk about these topics. And then in the 16th century, they start to circulate with these wonderful, beautiful maps uh, with which I'll have to I have to say I'm very obsessed and was sad that I did not get to do more of uh, with, with, I didn't get to work with them as much as I'd like in the book. Um, but what I found first in terms of the text, there's a similar thing going on in these geographical and cosmographical works in the 16th century, as I found with the exegetical works. They are much more interested in the question of why water doesn't flood the earth than earlier authors were and they're also much more likely to call it a miracle, uh, as we heard Martin Luther do. But this starts to shift. They, they come to this idea that, okay, the surface of the earth must be made up a, of a combination of land and water. And you start to see this in the 1520s. Uh, so early in the 16th century, this is what they're writing about. But when you look at the maps, um, specifically in this book, I looked at the, the world maps, you start to find that this idea of water, it really comes out, especially if you look at the southern hemisphere on these maps. Because the maps themselves have a bunch of land in the in the northern hemisphere, and then in the water, or the southern hemisphere. Excuse me. There's so much water that for those uh, map makers who were so inclined, they tend to put cute little and sometimes ferocious little sea monsters in the southern hemisphere in order to fill up what you know, some of them probably saw as a blank space. And I took that, and I argue that that's a further sign that they, even though they're like, okay, right, we're we're got this new idea of Earth as a combination of water and land, but they're still sort of grappling visually with where to put all the water that they think must be in the globe.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting to to think of. I mean, because I I never realized it before but i've totally taken for granted the the fact that i know that our planet is so wet and it's full of so much water whereas if you're you're living back then i i it's it it wasn't apparent and one thing i was kind of thinking of um kind of juxtaposing the water with land is is the idea of like wasteland and did as they were interpreting water did they see like did they see water as just kind of this this desert or was it more of a just waste of space or was it just divin, div, divine power or somewhere in the middle or none of those at all?
1: I, I think to be honest, it's all of the above. Okay, I, think water, cool. <laughs> yeah, I think water was very mysterious. Two 16th-century Europeans. Um, I was at a conference once, and one of the uh, the participants in my panel, I was talking actually about the sea monsters on some of these maps, and she she looked at me and she said, "Well, you art what you eat, right? So you draw what you eat, basically." And so some of the stuff they might know, because a lot of places obviously relied on uh, seafood as part of their diet. But once you get deeper out into the ocean, I mean, they have no idea what lies under the uh, the, the ocean surface, and so it is a great mystery. Uh, one that they tend to fill, at least in the 16th century, they often fill oceans that are not particularly well-known. So what we would call the Pacific Ocean or the Indian Ocean, they fill them with really, really scary sea creatures. Whereas like the Mediterranean Sea, sometimes they'll draw some sea creatures there and they're like really kind of cuddly looking. Um, There's this old idea that goes back to, uh, to, Ro- to ancient Romans and probably even before that, that if there's a land version of the animal, there'll be a sea version of the animal as well. And so I've seen maps where there's like a dogfish and it looks like, you know, like a mammal dog with like a fin, on, a fin tail. And so they put those in the Mediterranean Sea, but they put scary ship crushing monsters in uh, the Pacific and the Indian Ocean because they don't know them, don't know them very well in this period
2: oh my gosh i love that so much and and that really does speak to the the way that they that they classified things i I'm, my specialties in botany so I, what i've learned in the 15th century and, and before and then and 16th century and before is that they were classifying things based on what what the what the plant looked like and, and things like that and so the fact that they're translating that then to to these unknowns is really really fascinating, um, and I guess just because we are getting short on time and I wanna I wanna try and and cover as much as possible um, jumping to kind of chapter seven and really thinking about these um, it's the the ch- title of chapter seven is sea voyages and the water earth relationship and this is where you're really getting into this expanded world with with Africa and South America and 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 the Pacific and um i mean this is this it, this is a pretty transformational moment for for how Europeans begin to reorder it, i guess is it a transformational moment when when Europeans begin to reorder the world or is this would you argue it's just a continuation of what's been happening since, like, the medieval period?
1: Yeah, I think I think it's again. Sorry to uh, to pull the uh, the I was I tell my students the Finky professor thing, but I think it's a little bit of both. Um, just oh, that's to...
2: perfect. I'm I'm all about the gray spaces.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, me too. Um, so I think it's it's a little bit of both. I think on the one hand, there there has been long standing interest in Um, voyages, right? There's certainly many medieval voyages to the islands off the coast of Africa, for example, and to Africa and, um, you know, up even into the Atlantic and up kind of through the English Channel. So there's lots of, of interest in these voyages beforehand. There's lots of interest in the layout of the world. And so I think in that sense, these 16th century authors continue that interest. What I think is different for them is they have new information, both coming from newly discovered texts, right So texts that medieval scholars did not have access to uh, because of uh, you know they just they weren't discovered or printed yet and also the information that is coming from these voyages, which are again, circulating very widely in texts. They become relatively, I mean, they become bestsellers in the 16th century, stories of voyages, which are are things that medieval scholars did not have access to. And so that sort of changes then how they think about the world.
2: Wow, that's really really insightful and and a really interesting perspective into how how knowledge and worldviews are are created and how complex they they really are when when we start really digging into questioning why and what we know um and i i think this kind of leads leads back to your your afterward and and really take understanding water in our our own our own um world and and looking at something like blue humanities in in a to to help us deal with these with these um water crises as as well as bookish methods um i mean what moving forward if if you were to encourage like your students to think about water in a different way based off of off of this book and and all of the research and insight that that you can provide um would you mind just you know, enlightening us?
1: Sure, so I think what I would advise, I am obviously a Europeanist, and there's of course nothing nothing wrong with that. Um, but what I would urge students in the future to do is to uh, focus on other geographical areas, uh, specifically places where their water has been, uh, for lack of a better word, used and abused specifically by colonial powers. Um, i was very struck by a book by a person named rob nixon it's called a uh, slow violence and the environmentalism of the poor and it talks about how even after colonial regimes leave places the damage that they have done to the environment remains and doing some work on these areas in order to uh to kind of just learn the scope of the damage and also, looking at um, kind of local people's uh, water management knowledge would be a really useful and really fruitful line of of research, I think,
2: yeah, that sounds that sounds really useful and um and and a good way to go. and well, and this has been such a wonderful interview. and thank you so much for coming on to uh, to talk about about your new book. And um, before we go, we, we do like to ask our, our traditional closing question about what are you up to next?
1: Yeah, I appreciate the question. So uh, one of the things, one of the, the major questions that has driven my work and my interest in the intersection of uh, the history of religion and the history of science is the question of how do we come to know things uh, both as an individual like, how do you get to that moment as an individual where you say, I know this thing, as well as how do we get to that point as human communities? And that's what led me to the 16th century in general for my area of focus, because I think as we've discussed, so much is in flux with the uh, the inter- encounters with all of these peoples and places that Europeans had uh, never known existed before. And um, with my next project, I'd like to continue to explore that topic by looking at specifically notions of kind of human perception and how that shapes what we know, Um, so linkages between uh, bodies and knowledge, and specifically how, you know, who can know, what they can know, what is considered knowledge, how that has often been gendered. And so that's where my my research is, is moving next. Eek,
2: I'm so excited to, to to see how what 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 you come up with. That sounds so fascinating. Um well well Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on today. We we sure appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this and I really appreciate all of your enthusiasm for my work and your questions.
2: Oh, well, it's, it's been my pleasure, and, and I do encourage everybody to uh, to go and check out Encountering Water, Encountering Water in Early Modern Europe and Beyond, published by Amsterdam Press or University Press in 2020. Thank you so much, and um, have a great day, Lindsay.
1: Thank you. You too, Aspen. Thank you.